Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from two places in the Old Testament. First, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Both of these are in connection with the topic for the afternoon, which deals with the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall have no other gods but me, but God. And so we read first from Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 15. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you the large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. So far from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's also turn to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. And we'll read verses 18 through 25. Isaiah 45 verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret, in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, 
a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So far, the word of God. Let's also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism. Every Lord's Day we go there as a summary of the Christian doctrine. And this afternoon we find ourselves, somewhat randomly, in Lord's Day 34. Lord's Day 34, and we'll focus on question and answer 94, the last part of that, Lord's Day. There the question is, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the, very, for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures, rather than do the least thing against His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I mentioned we're taking a look at the first commandment of the law of God. And as we do this, we want to keep in mind the purpose for which the law was given. And you can hear that purpose in the preface of the law. Uh, The preface of the law being, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And there God reveals Himself as a Savior, as a Deliverer. We want to keep that in mind when we work through the Ten Commandments. Uh, God does not only give us the law in order to stand over us in judgment and condemn us, but also to show us how to live in the freedom that He has bought for us. Uh, That's the whole point of the preface. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And that's where then the first commandment immediately follows. The first commandment is all about our relationship with that God. So he says, I am the Lord, your God. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods but me. And it's so simple as a commandment, and yet so important. It deals with the most important question in your life, which is, who is your God. And that, that's why this commandment also then comes first. Because it is the most important question. And everything else that you know and believe and do within the 
Ten Commandments flows out of that question. Who is my God? Who will I serve? How will I live? It all follows from that first question. Another way to ask the question is is to ask, what do you exist for? Why do you exist? I've asked this question to my catechism students. I ask it every year, every couple of years when I get new students in and they haven't, by the time they're done the course, the answer's drilled in them. But when I get new ones, I love to ask it because uh, it's interesting to hear the answers you get. What do you exist for? And probably the most common answer I'll get is to serve God. Perhaps that's the answer you were thinking in, in your head as well. And it's a good answer. It's true. We exist to serve God. But there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way of, of understanding that. And so I, I like to press the question further. Okay, we exist to serve God. God made us for that purpose. What, what does that service look like? What kind of service uh, is God looking for? Well, a smart student might say, well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. Isn't that the service that God uh, commands of us? Yes, it, it is. Uh, that, would be, that would be correct. But let me press it further. Try and boil it down. Can you, is there a way to boil it down to say, this is what I exist to do? This is what God made me to do in a, in a single sentence. What's the heart of that service? Well, a really smart student might say, well, Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments with two, so that that should boil it down. You shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. All right, now we're getting somewhere because now we've defined the kind of service that God actually wants. And and that's true. The Lord said that is the greatest commandment. And did you notice... It's essentially the same thing as the first commandment in, in, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods but Me. Meaning, God must be your God. Meaning, you should love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, brothers and sisters, you need to know this. When, if, you, if you say, I exist to serve God, what kind of service is it that God requires? Because there is a wrong way to understand that. Pagan gods exist to be served as well as slave masters over their slaves. That is not the service primarily that God requires of us. You were created to love God. And that's how, how the, the uh, catechism also approaches it. You were created to know God, to love Him, and to live with Him for His glory and for your joy. That's the summary. I'll say it again so you can remember it. You were created to know God, to love Him, and to live with Him for His glory and for your joy. That's what this commandment is all about. And you can see it also in, in, in our confessions. In Lord's Day 3, it asks, uh, what were we like when God first made us? And, and it says, mankind was created in, in true righteousness and holiness for this exact purpose, so that he may rightly know God his Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters approach this from a different angle. 
the very first question of their catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is what is the chief end of man? It's the exact same question. What do you exist for? And they, they would answer to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the answer in their catechism. And I would argue that it's saying fundamentally the same thing. Uh, God made us to know Him, to love Him, and to live with Him. That's enjoying Him. And by so doing, we glorify Him. Uh, to, to glorify simply means to either to make glorious or to show something to, to be glorious. And of course, we don't make God glorious. He already is uh, glorious. But we do show Him to be glorious. And the way that we show God to be glorious is by knowing Him, loving Him, and living with Him. By enjoying Him. You glorify that which you enjoy. Uh, any of you husbands enjoy your wife? Well, if you enjoy her, by so doing, you are glorifying her. You're saying it's a delight to be with her. And we, we glorify that which we enjoy. And, and so we want to know that's the purpose for which we were made, to enjoy God because that is what glorifies Him. We weren't made just to serve Him with our works like slaves to a divine slave owner or like robots in a divine factory to just do the things that God made us to do. But we were made to know Him with our minds, love Him with all our hearts, and out of that love to live with Him in fellowship with all our strength. If you want to in, in really short uh, Twitter size format, you can simply say, God made us for relationship with Him. You were created for that purpose before everything else, just to have relationship with God. That's the reason then that we exist, to enjoy full, deep, sweet fellowship and relationship with our God. And that's then what this first commandment is all about and what we were created for. When God gave this commandment to, to Israel, He wanted them to know, that's what I've saved you for. I brought you out of Egypt for the express purpose of having relationship with Me. And the same is true for us. God not only created us for that, but God has also saved us in Jesus Christ, so that we could be reconciled to Him and enjoy that relationship with Him. Now we read from Isaiah 45, and I want you to be able to see that there as well. Uh, the prophet Isaiah was sent by God to, to call the people Israel uh, back to God after they had forgotten Him. If you remember from Deuteronomy 6, they were warned, don't forget the Lord your God. And they did. And Isaiah was sent to, to call them back. And it makes Isaiah, as a prophecy, as a book, it makes it a very heavy book uh, because there are warnings about punishment and exile, threatened. Uh, God makes threats uh, to, to call them back. But in the middle of all those warnings, there are also deep promises of God's grace. The suffering was meant to call them back, to turn them back to Himself, and the promise is that when they return, they'll find God's grace. So the basic message of the whole book of Isaiah is simply God saying, my people, return to me and discover joy and, and my grace. And so God essentially has to, to reintroduce Himself 
to the people of Israel who had forgotten him. And that's what you see in verse 18. He says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He didn't create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. So God introduces Himself all over. He wants us to know who He is. He wants us to know Him. And that's why God goes then through all this trouble to discipline Israel and to pull them back so that they would once again know Him. He says in the next verse, I did not speak in secret or in a land of darkness. In other words, God has not been hiding Himself from us. Sadly, many people, uh, even, even often within the church, think of God that way, that he, he holds Himself at a distance. He hides Himself from us. He says very clearly here, I'm not hiding Myself from you. I make it very easy for you to find Me. He, he didn't create us and then hold Himself at a distance from us. Uh, that's not God's character. In fact, right from the very beginning, when God created us, the first thing He does is reveal Himself to us, right? Genesis 1, verse 27, God made man in His own image, in the image of God, He created him. And God blessed them. And God spoke to them. The very, thing, the very first thing that God does after creating man and woman is speak to them. He wants them to know Him. So God made you to know Him, and, and He wants you to know Him as the most fundamental purpose for which you were created. The very first thing and the most important thing for which you were made is simply to know your God. Every one of us needs to know this because when you get this, that this is my life's purpose, to know my God, it pays a thousand dividends in in every area of life uh, because everything else becomes properly oriented. You know, this is what, I, I, what I'm here for. This is what I go through my trials for, to better get to know my God. Uh, this is what God gives me blessings for, not to accumulate them for me, but to get to know my God through them. Uh, the, the great church father, St. Augustine, said in, in his confession, uh, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. If you don't know Him, then everything else, you'll fill your life with all sorts of other things and none of them will ever give the satisfaction and joy and peace that only God can give. So God made us to know Him. It's the first thing. Second, God also reveals Himself as a God who is lovely. A God whom, as we know... Him, we will also love Him. So verses 20 and 21, he, he speaks to these nations who are out there busy serving wooden idols that can't do any good. And he calls them to recognize them as, as pieces of wood that are powerless to save. And he says in verse 21, Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. See, God's purpose is not only just that you would know Him, but that the more you know Him, the more you will learn to love Him. You'll, you'll discover as you get to know Him, you'll discover what He is like, and you will love and treasure who He is. 
And so he gives us two reasons in those verses to love him. He says, first of all, that he is a just God. And secondly, that he is a Savior. We recognize that God's justice, God's righteousness, another way to translate that, is, is something for us to treasure. God gives that to us as something to delight in, to be thankful for, to give thanks that He's not an unjust God, like so many of those gods uh, were in that time. Uh, you can appreciate this when you get to know the, the other gods that they were tempted uh, to worship, uh, who were not, not at all always portrayed as, as righteous. Uh, they could have as gods very serious de- moral deficiencies. They sometimes fought against each other. They could be capricious. They could be uh, cruel. They were selfish in their interests. They were unpredictable. They sometimes lashed out unexpectedly, even at their own worshipers. Well, God is not like that. He says, I'm a just God. And that's something for us to be thankful for. Our God is righteous. He loves justice. He never changes. And what would this world be without a God who is just? If we had no justice to hold on to, what would we ever have left? And so God gives that as one thing to hold on to. He also tells His people He is a Savior. He rescues them. He delivers them. He desires to save not to punish. He says in Ezekiel 18, uh, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? That's after all why, Christ, why God also sent Christ to this earth to live the life that we ought to have lived and die the death that we deserve to die and rise to give us new life because our God is a Savior. He loves to save. And so God says uh, again in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Well, brothers and sisters, and any guests that might also be in our midst, uh, you need to know this. This is a call to you as well. God is calling us to turn to Him. And indeed, here in Canada, we are uh, the very definition of the ends of the earth. And God calls us to know Him and love Him as well. And so God's desire then is that you would come to know Him, and the more you know Him, the more you would treasure Him and delight and rejoice in Him. He's made us for loving relationship with Him. And that then is what it means to glorify God. See, we confess Uh, and I I hope you know this at an instinctual level, that God does everything for God's glory. He's created us for His glory. All that He does, He does for His glory. And, And what that means then is that God has created us to know Him for who He is, to truly know Him so that we would truly love Him. And as we love Him, by that love, we honor Him and we esteem Him. That's what it means then to to glorify Him. And that's then what this commandment is all about. God says, have no other gods but Me. In other words, nothing and no one gets to take the place of God in our lives. He has made us for Himself and He insists that we never substitute anything else for Him in His place. Now before dealing with uh, some of the, the practical 
applications of that, let me first just address two objections that very commonly arise. In fact, I heard recently that uh, Brad Pitt used to be a member of some Christian church, I don't know which one, uh, but he left the church because of these two objections, and they're closely related. The first is, is God an egomaniac for demanding our exclusive worship? You read Deuteronomy 6, and he says, the Lord is a jealous God, you shall worship no other gods, and some would say, Why is God such an egomaniac to demand to be worshipped by all people everywhere? To demand to be first in in our hearts? And the second question is, if that is who God is, how can such a God truly be loving? If He loves His own glory above everything else, is He truly loving towards us? Well, is God, let's deal with the first one, is God an egomaniac? for demanding our exclusive worship. Well, if anyone else did that, if anyone else demanded that you worship them above everything else in your life, and that you have no one else in first place in your heart but them, we would rightly say that person has a major problem with their ego. Uh, They would be an egomaniac. The difference, though, is they are not God. If someone who is not God demands to take the place of God in in our hearts, they would have a major problem with their ego. But for God to demand to be God is perfectly appropriate because He is God. He deserves that place. God God is jealous for the honor that He deserves, and He's right to be jealous because He deserves it. See, this, makes, uh, this makes sense for us on a small level. If, if one of us accomplishes something difficult in, in the workforce, let's say, uh, it's, it's very reasonable for us to expect to be given credit for what we have accomplished within, within appropriate measure. And, and it would be wrong, we all know this, it would be wrong for your boss to then uh, come and take credit for what you have done. Some of you have been there and And it's infuriating. You think, I did this, and someone else is taking my credit. Now, you might be gracious and say, let them have it. Uh, They they need it more than I do anyway. Uh, But we still recognize it's wrong for them to take it. Well, that's true on, on a limited, finite scale with us. It's infinitely true of God. For one thing, He gives us our every breath, our every heartbeat. He sustains the billions of cells that work in our bodies in His perfect wisdom and almighty power. And so He deserves the credit for that. But beyond that, He is infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely righteous, and He, like us, deserves honor in proportion to what He is worth. Except His worth is infinite. So God is no egomaniac for demanding to be worshipped exclusively and by all people because He's not demanding to be honored beyond His worth, but in proportion to His worth as any of us also would demand. And so we want to recognize Scripture is very clear on this. God does everything for His glory. The display of His glory is His highest good in all that He does because it's the most worthy cause 
that God could ever serve. To give honor to whom honor is due. To love that which is lovely. To treasure that which is truly valuable. To delight in that which is good. Those are inherently appropriate and good things. And so God rightly does all He does for the glory that He is rightly due. Which brings us then to our second objection. Uh, Maybe we grant that, okay, God is deserving of of all that honor, and so it's right and fair for Him to, to demand it. But how can such a God be loving? Is it loving for God to pursue His glory as the highest good at which He aims in all that He does? Even if it's fair for Him, is it loving? Well, to answer that, I want to look at the last verse in Isaiah 45, verses 24 and, and 25. The Lord says, There only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. God's purpose is that His people would glory in Him. Now what does that mean? To glory in something. Well, it certainly implies that we're recognizing that thing to be glorious. That's certainly part of what it means, right? To glory in something. You're saying that is that thing that I'm glorying in is glorious. Uh, When I glory in my wife, for example, uh, which all of us husbands ought to do, one thing I am doing is holding her up as, as glorious. But there's something more to that phrase, to glory in. It also implies her glory is my joy. It's my delight. Uh, if I glory in my, way, in my wife, I'm saying she is glorious and I am privileged to be her husband. The same is true when it says the people of God shall glory in Him. See, God's purpose is there, clearly, His glory. That is the ultimate goal. He will make His glory known, and He's right to do so. But God's purpose is that His glory would be our treasure, would be our joy. That's what it means, after all, to worship God, to treasure His glory, to delight in who He is. It's not only to acknowledge uh, God's glory with our words, but it's to delight in His glory with our whole being. There's nothing that can give us greater joy than right relationship with our Creator because that's the thing for which we were created. And that's the point of this whole chapter then. God calls us to worship Him because worshiping Him is not only the greatest thing we can do for His glory, but it's also the best thing we can do for ourselves as people made to know Him and love Him. In other words, God's pursuit of His own glory is for you the most loving thing that God could ever do. His purpose is that you would delight in Him. What greater gift can God give than Himself. His pursuit of His own glory is His pursuit of your greatest good. Or to say it one other way, God is most glorified in us 
when we are most rejoicing in Him. Well, that's what the first commandment then is all about. You shall have no other gods but me is the most loving priority that God could ever have. Let's look at some implications and applications then for ourselves. To have another God is to have anything or anyone who takes the place of God in our hearts that belongs to God alone. Which is to say, uh, to whom we commit our lives and in whom we find our joy above everything else. Now understand, when, when God says you shall have no other gods, this does not only mean uh, other gods like Baal or, or Krishna or Allah uh, that go by, by specific other names. The Lord Jesus also spoke about the god Mammon, uh, which, which was the Aramaic word for money. No one actually worshipped a god by that name, but many people do worship that god. And, and that would also sadly include many people uh, in, in the church who claim to worship the god of the Bible, but in their hearts have another god. And so the question is, who or what do you love above everything else? Let me put it another way. What can't you be happy unless you have? What can't you be happy unless you have? That is your God. It might be a job. It might be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It might be a house or some other possession. It might be even your pride. If that's what you glory in, if you say, that's glorious and that's my joy and my highest joy, and I can't have joy without it, then that is your God. The psalmist in in Psalm 73 says, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. That's the meaning of worship. David says it this way in, in Psalm 63, Your steadfast love is better than life itself. That's what it means to worship God. Worship is not only done in our words. Worship is something that has to happen in our hearts where we treasure God above everything else. So the catechism defines idolatry in the language of trust. Having or inventing something in which to put our trust in instead of or in addition to the only true God. And so here's where it becomes very practical then. Does our bank account give us greater security and comfort than God's love? Do our personal relationships bring us more fulfillment than the relationship with the God for whom we were created? Now, it's not to say that, that relationships can't give you uh, fulfillment. God has made us that way to have relationship and to need relationship with one another. But if we would sooner give up our nearness with God than our nearness with someone else, then that has become our God. Does having fun matter more than being near to God? If so, then that too is our God. Does the respect and approval of others matter more to us than the approval of God? If so, that is our God? Does our pride matter to us more than God's honor? 
One way to measure that is which one gets you upset first, when your pride is insulted or when God's honor is insulted. I know that all of these are, are, are searching questions, and I recognize none of, the, none of us can answer these questions uh, if, if we're answering them honestly without acknowledging areas in our life that, that do have idols, that do need that idolatry uh, removed. And this is really our experience with every one of the Ten Commandments. They, they are there, uh, and one of the purposes they are there is to cause us to search our hearts. And they should then lead us to the cross, to confessing our sin, and, and to, to, to searching for salvation in Christ, to come and stand at the foot of the cross. But let's also remember there is a second purpose for the law. God gives us this law in order to show us how to live as a freed people. Now that He has set us free, how shall we live as free people? See, to put our hope in our bank account or in our personal relationships or in, in good times, in, in having fun or in the respect or approval of others is to become enslaved to those things. We weren't made to live for those things. None of them can ever give us lasting fulfillment. We can chase them our, our entire lives long and they will never give us the, the lasting joy that we are looking for. And when the day comes when we need them to, to fill the place of God after pursuing them as God our whole lives long, they will disappoint us. Uh, you can't, you, you can't uh, live against that which you, for which you were created and expect not to be, to be broken. Um, a good analogy for this is on, on uh, I'm sure many of you are in construction and you've seen this, uh, you, have a, uh, you have a wrench, let's say, in your pocket and, and, and you need a hammer or a nail and you can't find your hammer anywhere, so you, you grab the wrench and, and you just, you've all done this, you, you start banging on the nail with the wrench and, and your boss comes by and says, don't do that, it will break it. Why? Because that's not what it was made for. We were made for relationship with God Doing anything else in the first place in our hearts will break us. It's not what we were created for. And so God gives us these commands because that's what we were created for. True freedom is living for that which we were made to live for, which is to know Him and have His steadfast love and to love Him in return with all our heart. So God has, has made you for Himself. And to substitute anything or anyone else for Him is to substitute light for darkness. To substitute profound joy for empty wind. Ecclesiastes talks about how people chase after the wind. And, and it's to violate the most fundamental thing for which you were created, which is to know God and to love Him. So God gives us this commandment, yes, for His glory, but also for your deepest and most lasting joy. On this commandment, uh, it's good to recognize God is not teaching us that we, we cannot love anything else. We cannot love other things or love other people. Of course we can. We can and should love our families. We can love our friendships. We can delight in, in our children. We can enjoy our hobbies. The, the first commandment is, does not at all prohibit uh, loving and enjoying other things. But the point is, uh, God teaches us that these things are all gifts through which we love 
and enjoy Him. They are to be received, as, as the New Testament teaches us over and over, with thanksgiving. Which means you take what God gives you and you direct your joy and praise to Him who gave it. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Or in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. We don't live for these things. We don't put our ultimate trust in them as our source of satisfaction or fulfillment because that belongs to God alone. And the moment we do that, we enslave ourselves again. God gives us this command so that we would not become enslaved. Now the Catechism mentions a number of specific violations of this commandment. Witchcraft, superstition, prayer to saints. Uh, What all of these have in common is an inability or unwillingness to have relationship with God. Uh, Obviously, uh, Roman Catholics would object to to prayer to saints making that list. But the fact is that Jesus taught us to pray to our Father. And this is the model that you see throughout the the New Testament. Uh, You might think of the Psalms as well. Which of the Psalms is ever directed as a prayer to any other saint? Our prayers go directly to our God. And so the question uh, we would want to ask, if there are Roman Catholics that that would object to this being on the list, The question we would want to ask is, why would we in the first place assume that the saints have the ability to hear our prayers? The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere, that they have that ability. But even more troubling, and the deeper question is, even if they had that ability, why would you feel more comfortable praying to a saint as opposed to God? That's the real question, and... and, uh, Many, many former Catholics would often say the reason we pray to saints is because we thought the line was busy with God. There is no real, deep, sweet, lasting relationship with God for whom we were created. So brothers and sisters, hear then the call of our God. Turn to me and be saved, he says, to all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other God that can ever give you what you are looking for. So if you hear this commandment and you see that there are things in your life of which you must repent, then do repent them, repent of them, confess them to God, and then turn again to your Savior. Every one of us is guilty on on some level, but Jesus Christ has paid the price already for our idolatry, living the life that we ought to have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die so that we could turn and repent and be forgiven and find forgiveness and reconciliation and new relationship with our God. Turn to Him and be saved. And then having been saved, live as someone who is saved and is free. Draw near to God. Enjoy your salvation. Enjoy your relationship with God and let Him give you the love and the joy and the satisfaction and the significance that only He can give. Know Him, love Him, and live with Him for His glory and for your joy. Amen.